Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, I'm David Myers, host of Then and Now. I'm pleased to welcome as our guest today, Frank Wilderson, who is Chancellor's Professor of African-American Studies at the University of California, Irvine. He is the author of Incognigro, a memoir of exile and apartheid, and Red, White, and Black, Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonisms. In 2020, he published Afro-Pessimism, a powerful, influential, and beautifully written book that lays out a stark vision of the world marked by an unbridgeable divide between those whom the author calls humans and Blacks. This stark divide reflects a sense of hopelessness in overcoming the deep structure of anti-Black racism in the world. Professor Wilderson's take is uncompromising. It offers little or no hope of mitigation or reform of anti-Black racism. As such, it is a description of a fixed reality. The claims in the book are unsettling, and directly challenge the liberal belief in the possibility of change, especially in light of the centrality of race and racism in the history of this country, it is important, indeed necessary, to engage with Professor Wilderson's bracing ideas. Welcome to Then and Now, Frank Wilderson. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) So Afro-pessimism, the book, is part critical theory, part political treatise, part cultural criticism, and part memoir, and really uh, an amazingly artful combination of all those things. But let's try to understand how you came to this fascinating idea, since uh, you say at various points in the book that you weren't an Afro-pessimist, for example, at age 11 or in 1988. Uh, So as you describe, you grew up uh, for much of your early childhood in Minneapolis, the son of parents who were psychologists and university professors. And you offer a very evocative description of your life as a black kid in Minneapolis. And so I was wondering if you give us a sense, what was it like growing up in the 60s and 70s during the Vietnam War and the black liberation struggle? What was it like for you? You know, for me, I look I look back at those times and I think to myself that um, had I not been where I was geographically at key points, then I wouldn't be who I am today. I mean, that that, that era uh, changed everything. If you can think about it, in 1967, in what I call uh, Podunk, Minneapolis, Minnesota, when someone in Africa asked me, well, where's Minneapolis, Minnesota? I said, well, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and when I when I think about what was happening on either coast in '67 and all that was not happening in Minneapolis in 1967, I, I say to myself that had I not been um, the uh, child of you know uh, my mother was working on her PhD and my dad was a professor and soon to become a dean, uh, had that not happened and I had not been thrown into the milieu of that because it was only happening on campus, then I wouldn't have these particular thoughts. Um, So I was really fortunate in the sense that um, there were people who did not use the word revolution with a a twinge of irony in their voice, uh, people who did not 
uh, as their first go-to thinking about the problems of America, uh, think reform and uh, consolidation. Uh, there was the Students for Democratic Action, um, and the Tom Hayden group was going into pacifism, and the Weather Underground was splitting up. And so we, if you think at, at 11 in 67, only having a glimmer of this, because I was traveling with my father to psychology conferences that could go half price and seeing a glimmer of it, but still a very devout Roman Catholic uh, to the point where I listened to Gregorian chants, you know, shirtless and on a hot day on the living room floor and wanting to be a, a priest. And the very next year, um, 1968, as most of your students and my students hopefully know, the whole world began to change. Um, and I went from there and I joked, say I wanted from being a priest to, to being a looter. Well, basically I was exposed to just a wide ensemble of people who would come to the house in Minneapolis for what we would call LBJ Great Society meetings. These would be liberal industrialists, uh, Black Panther types, uh, white revolutionaries, uh, NGO type workers, and, and psychologists. And there was, I couldn't translate all this, but all this hubbub of debate and conversation. And people left stuff. I like pamphlets. And because my parents had made me and my sister um, read newspaper articles in first grade, even though uh, we were reading Dick and Jane, I could read a lot of stuff because I read at a junior high school level, but not know what it meant. And I would just pick up stuff. I would pick up things that were left around because my parents' bookshelf, France Fanon's The Russia of the Earth. And then later, two years later, at the age of 13 slash 14, um, we went on a year-long sabbatical to all the hotspots. Uh, we went to Detroit right after the Algiers Motel incident and the, and the riots there. Uh, we went and we lived in the housing projects in the ghetto. We went to Chicago and lived around the corner from Elijah Muhammad and Jesse Jackson in Hyde Park and the hubbub of revolution activity. And Fred Hampton was murdered. And then we moved to Berkeley um, and six blocks from UC Berkeley's campus, and the Panthers and SDS would come to our school and kick the teachers out and hold anti-imperialist uh, workshops and give us gloves for throwing tear gas canisters back at the uh, Alameda County Sheriff's and the National Guard. The National Guard commandeered my junior high school right after Cambodia uh, and, and Kent State for their camp. So I got an education Far beyond my capacity to comprehend, I was reading Rampart's magazine religiously as a 13 and 14-year-old, and um, I just came back to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and decided to become John the Baptist at my high school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I, you know, At the end of the book, you relate that at age 12, um, in that very uh, tumultuous year, uh, you told your mother that you were going to Vietnam. Uh, to join in, um, and she sort of looked at you quizzically, and then you said to fight for the Viet Cong. Yes. Um, is that true? Yeah, yeah, there was a ton of of, of uh, you know. Sometimes now that I'm 65, I feel for my parents uh, back then, but you know, uh, but I but I kind of also resent their hard hand in trying to keep me away from all this stuff. Um, 
they were they were suffering. The FBI had followed them to all their sabbatical points, um, but they did not want to take. Uh, I'm using antagon- I use antagonism in my writing clinically. Theoretically, I'm using antagonism now colloquially in terms of attitude. They didn't want to take the, an antagonistic attitude towards the government. Um, and my father's brother was in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, he had made some comment about how, uh, because of his position, he could help me get into a military academy. And there was all that talk. I was like, what the hell? Are, are, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? First, we're going to do on Vietnam. Then we're coming here and overthrowing this shit here. You know, I mean, <laughs> but for the grace of God. <laughs> Did you imagine yourself, for example, after you came back from Berkeley from that sabbatical um, and that you know amazing tour of uh, sort of America aflame um, as an activist? Um, did you imagine yourself as an intellectual? Um, sort of. When did you come to consciousness that your uh, mission in life was to think and write? Um, and did you always see that as connected to the ethos of activism? Yes. Well, I, I was I was writing since I can remember. So uh, being wanting to be a writer was kind of like forever. Um, in third grade, I won a state prize for poetry, um, and I went to an all white uh, elementary school in a very the wealthiest part of Minneapolis. Um, so it was kind of like a private school, but there was a lot of um, kind of fights and taunting that, that I experienced, you know, I, I must say as a kind of caveat that if you talk to my brothers and sisters about that, they were going to, ha- they're going to have a different experience. I think partly because of gender, partly because they came after me and partly because those three did not stay in the public school system. They went to a private school after that. Um, so I was actually uh, to, you know, full, full disclosure uh, before we went to, um, on that sabbatical, I had spent the last year in in the uh, western suburb, in the western part of Minneapolis, Kenwood School, in seventh grade, and they just decided at the end of seventh grade that when I came back, I was going to have to go to a school in the black area or somewhere else because there were too many fights. That, you know, the the guy was my mother was like a, a, a sub superintendent, and here's this principal telling her, you know, either we had to pick up Kenwood and move it away. Or this kid has to go somewhere else. Um, and I wrote, um, you know, in those days, um, Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff were, were big. And so I wrote what I called horror stories or vignettes about uh, about a lot of really neat, nasty things that would happen to my teachers. Uh, and so those are my kind of first prose pieces. Uh, my poetry started before that. Um, and I think meeting the Panthers, especially in Berkeley, I really, you know, as I say in my first book, a Panther saw me come into the office every day after school and I couldn't train as a Panther. I wasn't 16 and you had to have a note from your parents if you weren't 16. So I could only go to the classes. Uh, I couldn't do weapons training. And he took Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man out of my hand. He threw it in the garbage can and he said, uh, I don't want you to come up with this Tom asked book anymore to our place. 
and he shoved the wretch of the earth into my hands, and he said, read concerning violence and come back and tell me what it says. Here's the interesting thing. I went home because I thought, well, where have I seen that? I used to scroll my, you know, like you have all these books. That's what my parents' books look like, you know. And I said, I've seen that name somewhere. for none. Well, they had black skin, white mass. So the black bourgeoisie psychologists were reading black skin, white mass, and the people on the street were reading Wretch of the Earth. And I thought, oh, well, this will be groovy. Well, they were really angry at it. And um, so I came back to Minneapolis and I had to go to another school. I had to go what's called the University Lab School because I couldn't go to school in my neighborhood. And the Johnson administration had a holdover that was still happening in the Nixon administration where they took three cities in America to create a great society K through 12 experiment. One was Topeka, Kansas. One was Berkeley. And one was the southeast corner of Minneapolis, where the university was. And they took the university high school, which was the kind of hippie kids of professors, and they put it together. And Bob Dylan had a cafe in Dinkytown that ran this two-block set of shops, like head shops and coffee shops. On the other side was this white working-class public school where kids whose parents worked on the railroads and, and um, steel mills, not steel mills, the, the flour mills, they put those two schools, those things together. They bust in 4% Indians from the South, and they bust in 10% Blacks from the North, and they created this new experiment. And it was run by HEW, which was not in existence. It's called something else now. It was Health, Education, and Welfare. Well, I immediately became the student representative to the HEW committee that ran that whole thing. And then the United Nations came and they asked me to become the co-chair of the United Nations Committee on Options in Public Education, which was a global thing that the UN was running to explore radical alternatives to education. And then I became head of the student government instead of the senior class. And, I, and because we were part of the University of Minnesota, we had a television station and a radio station in the high school. And I, and I produced a... Um, TV show where I interviewed radical activists from the university and a radio show where I did progressive music. So this whole thing began at like 12, 13, 14, and it just continued and consolidated uh, in high school. And then it kind of fell off the rails when I went to uh, Dartmouth College. <laughs> yeah. I want to get to Dartmouth in just a second, but I do want to ask, you know, if you if there was a moment at which you had a kind of conscious awakening that I am not a liberal. I'm not a liberal who believes in the prospect of integration as the you know icons of the civil rights movement and your own parents um, had held to. I am decidedly other than that. And I, I ask that in wake, I'm particularly, you know, been thinking a lot about the work of Charles Mills, uh, the great critic of, of liberalism, who nonetheless thought that liberalism had to be saved from its own white supremacist excesses. Um, and so I'm wondering about you and liberalism. And was there a, a eureka moment when you said, this just isn't going to work? Or was it more wrapped up in, you know, your own teenage rebellion against your parents and all sorts of other factors apart from, you know, a pure political theoretical move? I think at the level of spectacle, it was wrapped up with my rebellion against my parents and what was happening. But I will tell you this, as an intellectual conceptual turn, um, 
something happened right after Kent State, and I always have to tell my students, when was Kent State, and what's the significance, okay? Because <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> you know? We're old, man. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So a few, a few days after Kent State, which was the National Guard killed some white students at university, Kent State University in Ohio, and campuses erupted, uh, we students at the junior high school in Berkeley ran up to Berkeley where, where the undergrads were fighting the National Guard and the Alameda County Sheriffs in hand-to-hand combat in Sprawl Hall, Sprawl, Sprawl Plaza. And I was, uh, this went on for a while. And one of these is I was arguing with one of the, the white students in my junior high school about why they didn't erupt. I think I was arguing why they didn't erupt after Jackson State, which happened in Mississippi, you know. And the National Guardman hit me with something, like the butt of a rifle, and I fell down into this ravine called Strawberry Creek. At the bottom of it, there was this young white woman who must have been an undergraduate at Berkeley who was in SDS, and she her face was swollen with tear gas. She was dabbing her face with water and wiping the tear gas out of her eyes. I was crying real tears, and I think I said, I want my mommy. Not a very revolutionary move, right? And uh, I was about to go up the other side of the, 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 the ravine and just leave the melee. And she says to me, hey, kid, don't you go to Willard Junior High School? Haven't I seen you in one of these teachings? And I said, yeah. And she says, and she wraps the bandana back around her head, and she's flushed her eyes out. She said, and here's where it came. Have you ever heard the expression, you can't fight City Hall? And I said, yeah, I heard that. And she said, you know who put that shit out on the street? And I said, no. She said, City Hall put that shit out on the street. Let's you and me get back up there and kick some pig's ass, you know. And she grabbed me and dragged me up the hill. And then, you know, I wasn't terribly happy about going up back up the hill. But I thought to myself, you can fight City Hall. These structures are not ordained by God. They're, you know, it was like, it was just, I was 14, but it was like, this kind of thing where I'd been taught, you go to school, you get a good job, you know, you get elected. Mondale had asked my dad to run for Congress. You know, City Hall is where you go for to get redress. And she's saying, no, City Hall is a propaganda machine. It's a, you know, I thought, and it just hit me all the way for the rest of that, you know, time. You can fight City Hall. And I think that's when I just um, kind of began to think, I don't have to ask the question how to make City Hall better. I have to ask the question, why should City Hall exist? You know? Right. And I should just say that your City Hall includes liberal icons like Fritz Mondale, yes. <laughs> Barack Obama, and Nelson Mandela. That's exactly. Yeah. All of whom dwell in City Hall in your vision of things. Exactly. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, there are two kind of um, incongruous um, uh, stations in your in your biography that um, I, I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about. One is your your uh, your um, time at Dartmouth College, which of course was um, a bastion of conservatism at that time, and seemed like it might not be the best place for nurturing sort of this uh, a, a radical sensibility. And then you were a stockbroker for eight years, uh, about which you're relatively uh, Taciturn in in, in, in pessimism. So I wonder if you could say just a word about what was going on in both of those uh, journeys. Well, I mean, it's kind of like if you were ever a porn star, you don't want people to know about that. You know, I mean, it's like 
<laughs> right, either you do or you don't, right? One of those two. Yeah. Um, uh, what can I say? I mean, um, we know from Freud and Lacan that the mind is nothing but 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 a, a bastion of divided subjectivity, and um, you know. The older I get, for example, the more money I want, or the more I realize how there are people in the class of 78 who are multimillionaires. I just looked up Jeff Immelt, who I was on the football team with, who graduated with me, you know, and he's got a $150 million net worth and he runs General Electric. I said, how does that happen when I'm horribly in debt? You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so another guy on the football team who's got a $50 million net worth. Um, so... Uh, I'm against capitalism, but I want that net worth. I mean, it's it's um, it, what I think what happened was that if people read the book, they will come to a chapter called uh, Hattie McDaniel is Dead. And uh, that is a chapter which I won't go into detail about, but it, uh, it, I was not a doctor for political act- activism, for actually supporting the white working class who are ultimately racist, uh, who are being victimized by the school. And I was kicked off with three classes, classes left to graduate, and I was kicked out for two years. Uh, and I was extremely poor over those two years, which I had never experienced real poverty before. And um, I was in a relationship with a, a woman who was also poor and had a daughter who was 11 when we started and now you know, four, 13 or 14. And I thought, I will just play the game. And... Being a stockbroker is, I thought incorrectly, a way to have autonomy and make a ton of money. I made a lot of money. Uh, in fact, if I had stayed as a stockbroker today, my uh, and just done the gradation of sales increases at about ten percent a year that I was doing then, I would be making three hundred and twelve thousand dollars a year, as opposed to one hundred and seventy-one thousand. So that's a a major major. Uh, um, and I, I just felt that uh, I could live a double life by working for Merrill Lynch in the daytime and being part of the uh, Free Limo uh, and, and, and uh, most uh, MPLA support committees in the evening and teaching creative writing in the evening. It did not work. Um, it was not a good dub- double life. Um, but that's one thing I thought. And with respect to Dartmouth, um, as I allude to in the book, I mean, I was 18 in uh, 1974, and I had good grades, but not great grades. And places like UCLA and UC Berkeley, uh, they have what's called a kind of, or at least they did, a kind of Ivy League standard of admission for out-of-state students. If I lived in California, I would have been a shoe-in for Berkeley. Uh, but they told me that you know, I was on a waiting list, and I was afraid to to leave my parents, I could I could have worked for two years, got off of their taxes, moved to Berkeley, and reapplied as an in-state student and got in immediately. But I was recruited by the football team at uh, Yale and at um, Dartmouth, and um, the Yale admissions uh, put me on a waiting list, and the Dartmouth people gave me a kind of early admission. So it was, and my dad pressured me. He said, "I'm smarter than you." Uh, I couldn't go to an Ivy League school in the 1950s. They just opened this up three years ago to black students. You got to go. And I thought, what the hell? 
I'll play football. It, it, it was a bad choice, but as we used to say in the Black Student Union at Dartmouth College, having gone to this school, we can deal with any kind of racism anywhere in the world because it's not going to get worse than this. <laughs> well, so then you um, you left Dartmouth. You spent the time as a stockbroker um, uh, and realized you could not lead that double life. And then you had what seems to be after that um, uh, an immensely consequential experience, which was when you went uh, to South Africa in the 1990s. Um, you taught there. Uh, you waited on tables in a restaurant called Mario's, about which you report in the book and some of the most evocative and powerful sections of that book. Um, and you worked for the ANC, including uh, in a clandestine unit um, in which you did things that you write would make a pacifist cringe. Um, so without revealing too much, what were you doing um, in South Africa and, and, and really what, what impact did it have on your, on your emerging sense of the world? You know, I made a deal with the, you know, there was a guy named Bushy Kiliboni. I called him Stimela in my first book. And he was the commander of his, his uncle was Joe Modisi, head of the high command, which is the governing structure of the entire army, which is about 15,000 people. And uh, Bushy, who I call Stimela in my first book, was the, was the, um, not in the high command, but he was, he was a member of the Communist Party and a commander of let's just call it like L.A. and Ventura County, something like, like that. So he, he ran a lot of cells. And um, he and the white person who was my immediate handler, who was also in that unit and a student in comparative literature, uh, did not want me to write that first book. So that's why I had to be a little bit coy. And so I kind of made a deal that I would only talk about anything that was in the public domain, which is like their bombing of the Conservative Party headquarters and certain other things, um, which kind of left me in the lurch because I can't really talk about the three operations that I was about. Uh, but what I will say is this. There were three main theaters of operation, which were uh, secret propaganda. This was uh, an effort to um, get the Western media to... Um, sometimes just feeding lies to the Western media. Um, I was an American, and so a lot of Western journalists like uh, Bill, someone who's a managing editor for the New York Times, had just come from, uh, I can't remember his name, just come from the, the crumbling Soviet Union. And, you know, they had a very pacifist kind of thing. Is the ANC really committed to peace? And, and at the same time, we were running guns, into townships to fight the police and the Nkata Freedom Party. And so uh, when they got word that an arms cache had been moved into a township or a squatter camp, I might meet a journalist to give them a big spiel about how, no, 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 there's no guns here, you know, and all that kind of thing. So it was secret propaganda, there was psychological warfare, which was, um, and this was kind of something that I excelled at, um, which was teaching uh, cadres how to disturb the psyche of not Afrikaners, but white English-speaking people. So 
who consider themselves to be pacifists, they consider the white English-speaking people, like the people under Oppenheimer and the Nadine Grotemers, even though she was in the ANC, she's more of a pacifist. But people, I don't mean her because she was a friend of mine, people in power, they like to think of themselves as, we just live and let live. And the Afrikaners are the ones bludgeoning people. And so what we needed was a, a, a strategy for f- forcing or eliciting a kind of rage from white liberals that would allow them uh, to harness the violence that sustains them so that we could see their bicuspids, you know, their, and that they would act like the Afrikaner Act so that the black masses would not get seduced into thinking that uh, we had allies in them and we could move it more. And and because I had grown up with white liberals, I knew how to destroy them psychically. And that was uh, a really delicious part of my uh, <laughs> my endeavors, <laughs> which I could say that I honestly contributed to that other South Africans didn't know how to do. Uh, partially because there's a thing called Ubuntu, which in, in the Bantu cultures, which means goodwill and compassion, and uh, since I'm a slave on an auction block, all I know is Nat Turner's uh, revolt. And I could bring that kind of energy to these projects, which uh, created um, massive, uh, ugly reactions from white people who positioned themselves as allies. And that allowed, uh, the, especially the universities, allowed the masses to mobilize against them. And not just to see, you know, like the white Southerner or the white Afrikaner as the enemy. And then the other thing was covert uh, operations. And I was old when I started this. I mean, I was about 33. And uh, that's about 10 years to 12 years too old to actually start this. I did not have any formal training. They tried to give me weapons training. And they only issued me a gun three times in five years. uh, Because if you have a weapon and you get parted from it for any reason, you could you could stand to be court-martialed by the high command. It was very, very strict. So, you know, I, there is something I'd like to talk about, but I won't because I promised I wouldn't. But I will say it's not as romantic as people want to think of it. There's a lot of mundane downtime. And I think that the difference between a revolutionary underground structure and the structure of the state in terms of our counterparts in, say, special branch, is that there's a tremendous amount of studying that goes on. Um, I led a tremendous amount of, of uh, workshops on Gramsci and Marx to, uh, to underground cells so that when targets were hit, for example, one, the, the whole cell would have an understanding of how is this going to help bring about the end of capitalism or what is the, what is the political... It's like the old Soviet Union where political commissars would travel with platoons. Um, and I was very impressed by that. Um, and also that think I, I should say that, you know, when it came time for me to actually do something that I will not talk about because I promise not to, I trained for two months for it. And two weeks before it was supposed to happen, um, I vomited and had diarrhea for about 10 days running. And at and I said to the handler, I don't think I can do this when you come for me. And he said to me, it's okay. He was this white guy of German extract um, 
who had already been um, tortured um, because he had bombed the Conservative Party headquarters. And in order to become an above-ground politico, he had gone back to the place that he had bombed and thrown his student ID into the rubble so that he could orchestrate his own capture and orchestrate his own torture so that he could emerge from that as a legitimate voice in above-ground structures. And he said to me, what's happening is you're shitting and vomiting all the corporeal investments of Catholicism and Judeo-Christian morality. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not do that, you know. And, um, and the body is reacting against what you have to do. I have no doubt that when we come for you, you will be ready. And um, he told me a story about a Africana cop who he was supposed to kill in a um, post office. And he didn't think he could do it. And if he didn't do it as a white person, there would be no way for the, the unit to trust him because that's the ultimate, you know, if anyone's watched the Battle of Algiers, they'll let you, the state will plant you in an underground cell and they'll let you do anything to other colored people, but they will not let you kill a state representative who is white. And um, he just felt organically he couldn't do it. And, and when he, and, but he got up and he walked to the post office with his weapon and um, when he walked in, some other operative had already done it for him. It was just to see, was he going through with that? Could he break the fourth wall of his psychic limitations and his racial apparatus, and he could. And he said to me, I know you can. And I said to him, I know I can't, but I will, I, I will stop there and say that I broke the fourth wall, but I won't ever say what it was. <laughs> so this is a very different trajectory from the path of nonviolence um, that was such a central tenet of the civil rights movement um, as brought to the movement by Reverend James Lawson. Um, dissimulation, violence are legitimate means of advancing the revolution, bringing an end to capitalism as you articulated it. Um, at that time, um, in that kind of intense revolutionary period phase of your life, um, it seems like you believed that those were not only legitimate tactics, but uh, potentially effective tactics to bring meaningful change. It seems to me, as a result of that, you were not an Afro-pessimist then. Um, and so my question is, is that, a, is that true? And, and when did you come to um, a different understanding of, in a certain sense, the futility uh, of that kind of activism in ultimately upending the auction block, as you uh, just mentioned? I'm glad you brought that up because I, because I, I think that always, it always needs clarification since I write so obliquely about this. I still, I do not believe that there's a, that revolutionary violence is futile for black liberation. I only believe, in fact, I would, I would actually argue that um, there's no paradigm that can be overturned through negotiation. Paradigms are instantiated with violence and um, the paradigm of anti-blackness continues with a kind of gratuitous violence that doesn't have an immediate utility. Whereas the paradigm of capitalism continues with a violence 
that comes after the working class resists the discursive hegemony of the, of the capitalist uh, ethics. So I don't think capitalism, the nuclear family, uh, which, which creates man-woman, which are artificial semiotic instantiations, or anti-blackness or post-colonialism, none of these things can be ne- can be negotiated. The only thing that can be, can be negotiated is uh, expansion of rights and privileges within these overarching oppressive paradigms. Paradigms in this, and Rance, Franz Fanon makes this point uh, in the first third of the Wretch of the Earth. He says, uh, you know, the Algerian isn't violent. The Algerian lives in violence. You know, I mean, Algeria, the Pied Noir are violent. We're, you know, we're, we're not, uh, we're just acting within a structure that exists. Black existence is always already violence. Um, America is always already violence. And so um, what's different about that period in South Africa is that we could, is that Marxism as a mode of analysis as, as a descriptive apparatus, which you get from the three volumes of Das Kapital and the Grundrisse, Marxism also has this other thing, which is the Communist Manifesto, which is a prescriptive gesture about what a new world could look like. And so the mind could settle itself by anchoring in an underground cell, by anchoring it, by anchoring these, these activities and these actions that produce vomiting and diarrhea and an internal sense of, of absolute vertigo, it could be from the grounding wire in here's where I'm going. Here's what it'll look like. You know, blackness can't find that grounding wire. That's the only difference. And so I, I, uh, what was fortunate for me in, is that I don't have a um, moral attitude towards an ensemble of tactics, um, which is very different than the civil rights movement. It's, it's uh, tactics come with, they're morally laden. Uh, violence is morally wrong. Nonviolence is morally right. Um, I'm much more uh, fluid. And it, it's, it's like, I remember when, uh, in my book, I write about, um, right before I went to South Africa, Edward Said was supposedly had a Abu Nidal of the PLFP was going to kill Said because they had this argument of whether we should be attacking Israeli school buses. And Said says to me, look, we had a tactical disagreement about how to undo the state of Israel, not whether the state of Israel should be undone. It has to be undone. And there has to be a secular nation state where no ethnicity and no religion actually has political or social capital. So I'm not arguing about that. He says, I have a, I've got a best friend, my buddy, Yasser Arafat, who doesn't believe that. He wants a two-state solution. So he says, even though Abu Nidal might kill me, because I said, tactically, it's not very cricket for you to attack civilian targets while I'm on McNeil Lear trying to raise the consciousness of Americans, it's not a strategic difference. We all, we both want the same thing, which is the end of the state of Israel. We, what I'm saying is that right now, this is not the way to do it because we're trying to build up solidarity. Um, and so that, 
little talk that he gave me in, in his in office hours, I carried with me to South Africa uh, in, my, in, what, in what Freud would call my pre-conscious mind. In my unconscious mind, I was still a devout Roman Catholic, as you can see by, by the excessive vomiting and, 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 and diarrhea, okay? But the pre-conscious intervention really helped me. Um, for example, when Bushy would say in little meetings, uh, we've got to hit this, we've got to hit that. You know, I would say to begin with, what, what, excuse me, what, what do you mean uh, hit? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 the white liberal from Ken would come up, would come up to me like, what exactly, what, what do you mean? You know, and eventually that kind of withered away. And so I don't have an attitude about tactics. Tactics are legitimated by the people that you're fighting for. Okay. Um, much to unpack there, but I want to make sure that we actually uh, get to Afro-pessimism. Um, and um, maybe we can come back to this question of, uh, of violence and tactics um, as part of uh, thinking with Afro-pessimism, uh, which you describe or define as black people at their best, mad at the world, uh, is black folks at their best. Um, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? I mean, it seems at some level self-evident, but I, I, I want to just, um, hear in your own sense of things, um, what that is, um, a description of the world, um, a, uh, a, a, a call to action. Um, and I also, am just interested in when you think you became an Afro-pessimist. Oh, well, the first, the second one is easy. Uh, I, you know, I went to UC Berkeley in 1997 to start my PhD, and I continued to try to elaborate my thinking through Antonio Negre, the great uh, autonomy of communists, and, and Antonio Gramsci. And I met Jarrett Sexton, who was a year ahead of me, and he showed me a book uh, by Cynthia Hartman called Scenes of Subjection. And he's and he there was basically and he actually had me interview Sudia, which is why we got the term Afro pessimism. And he says, here's where she interrogates the idea that every sentient being has is asked to give their consent to the hegemony of the ruling order. And it, and it was just a most powerful uh, part because hegemony for Antonio Gramsci has three constituent elements influence the influence of of i of a of a class leadership the leadership of ideas like meritocracy and spontaneous consent to those you know and so what Sudhir opened up through her case studies on slave women was that black people are never addressed as subjects to give consent to their oppression uh women are addressed like that um Non-black minorities are just like that. The working class are just like that. Black people exist in the minds of everyone as what Sadia Hartman calls extensions of the master's prerogative. And so that, and, and then David Marriott, who was a professor at UC Santa Cruz, came out with On Black Men, which was a Lacanian psychoanalytic intervention. 
And one of the things he said in that book, I won't go into the details, was that I really don't think that there's a thing that we can call the black unconscious, because we cannot get to a thing called black desire. Black desire is always overdetermined by non-black desire. And so at that moment, I realized that um, the two foundational discourses for revolutionary action, which would be psychoanalysis for radical feminism and Marxism for anti-capitalist work, we're actually missing something at the level of suffering. They're missing, how do we think about a person who is actually not a person? How do we think about a person who is a foil for the existence of other people? And and then and, and I, and I'll end it by saying that we were I was seeing this in action in uh, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, Bay Area political groups, um, for example, to get Bill Clinton to pardon revolutionaries, um, there was a way in which Clinton responded to our efforts um, which in which his unconscious could see in the, in the weather underground relational beings. He could see in Native Americans relational beings. He could see in um, Puerto Ricans relational beings. And he completely shunted to the side our our uh, attempts with these brochures about Black Panthers and Black Liberation Army people, not because of a conspiracy theory, but because unconsciously he could not see a transformative arc, a narrative arc of transformation in these Black people. They were guilty and dishonorable prior to their 60s, 70s, revolutionary acts in America. And that was really fascinating. It would have been far better if he had said, I just don't trust them or something. It was, it was, it was, it was what Sadir Hartman calls the unthought. And, and, and I think that, and I was pressuring, pressuring Jared Sexton in our reading groups at grad school. I said, you know, I'm really tired of this, of the humanities. I've come back to the United States and everybody's into this goddamn hybridity. How do I participate in civil society? How do I have my voice heard? Do I get uh, biracial people on the goddamn consensus? And I said, these are not questions that are going to lead to an iconoclastic revolution. Where do we find the essential antagonism? And Sexton says to me, what if we thought the essential antagonism through anti-blackness? And we also read Orlando Patterson's Slavery and Social Death. And that was it. You know, but as I say in the book, also, that was it. That caused me a nervous breakdown uh, <laughs> and sent me to the cyber. And, and that's not a metaphor, um, as anyone who reads the opening of the book can understand. Very <laughs> that was for real. <laughs> so, um, you know, drawing on Patterson and 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 this extraordinary um, circle or circles of thinkers um, with whom you were generating this idea. I mean, you arrive at this uh, central antagonism, as you call it, which to me seems like an ontological divide, um, not just semiotic, an ontological divide between humans and blacks or slaves. Uh, when do you think that, uh, forgive me for the historical question, I'm an historian, so it's a, a disciplinary um, bias. When did that divide begin? Um, you know, from time immemorial? Um, I, that, it's probably not a question that interests you, but it is a question that interests me, especially because I want to ask you next about analogy. So I'm, I want to sort of build towards that. Well, well, how did it come into being? You know, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a 
product of the American slave experience, presumably precedes that. So how do you understand the genealogy of that essential antagonism? I have to give credit where credit is due. My understanding of that comes after my second book, uh, which is Red, White, and Black. Because in my second book, I'm thinking of that of that kind of big bang moment as um, as the transatlantic slave trade, and um, and also we should also say because sometimes Orlando Patterson, the man himself, wants to recognize how Afro-pessimism has brought his book back into light, but also sometimes he wants to distance himself from it. So um, everything we do, our work on Gramsci, our work on uh, Lacan, our work on uh, Patterson, is should be recast as a kind of hijacking of what they've done, as opposed to a fortification and extension of their assumptive logic. Uh, because I don't think what I'm about to say, uh, Patterson agrees with. Um, and so Patterson would say, look, if you don't have slavery, you cannot have a civilization. It's just that simple. Um, he says, there are people walking around in a stratified society and they have to know, I am a subject of the social contract. I am a subject of rights and claims. I'm also an object of rights and claims. I mean, at any moment of the day, uh, the rights and I'm, I'm an object that's owned by my wife or an object that's owned by my husband or I'm an object that's owned by a sports uh, uh, owner, you know, but at another moment of the day, I can be a subject of rights and claims and own something. He says, in order to conceptualize and get that through your head, there's got to be someone in every society who's walking around who can only be an object of everyone else's rights and claims. This other sentient individual could never be a subject of rights and claims. So that's the first move Patterson makes. And he says, if you don't make that move, you can't talk about freedom. Because to know freedom, you got to know its embodiment of absolute unfreedom. You can't talk about rights because to know rights, you got to know its embodiment of absolute unrights. So he says, the slave in every society is a necessary component for the coherence of everybody else. All right, but then he makes another move and he says, every culture has been enslaved and they have enslaved someone else. So, I, so his book goes back thousands of years and then across the planet. But here's where we kind of differ. The word recruitment implies a narrative progression, which is to say that before I was recruited into social death, let's say I'm more on my knees on the shores of Tripoli and a crusader is about to cut my head off and the crusader says, you have a choice. I will cut your head off and give you real death or I will, I will recruit you into social death and you will become a genealogical isolate, you will become available to the whims of everyone on society, and you, and you will be dishonored in your being, not in your actions. So that's a recruitment into social death by Patterson. Now, what we have argued is that no one can say, no one can say that there was blackness prior to social death. And that's one can say that prior to social death, which is 625 AD, there were Maasai, there were Bugandans, there were Kukuyu, um, there were um, Zulus. You can say that. 
do you see what I'm saying? Those are cultural beings. Those are ethnic identities. Just like under the rubric of worker, there are many ethnic identities. But no one can say there was blackness, nor can anyone say there was Africa, prior to an external consensus that this group of people were socially dead. That's a really important point, because that, what that means is that blackness was not recruited into social death. Blackness emerges coterminous with social death. It's a paradigmatic position, not a cultural or ethnic entity. And um, so I, so, so this is graduate students doing research on that, and, and particularly, uh, particularly a woman, um, uh, uh, Parisa Vaziri from Iran, who now teaches at Cornell, helped me understand that through their research, that this really, this is a, this is a mode of interpreting the African body that does not start with the Portuguese. It starts with all those other people way before that, that I, that I, that I mentioned. So I'm, I'm a scholar of Jewish history, and I ask myself, could not one make a similar claim about the birth of Christianity and the development, the evolution of the, the essential antagonism between Jew and, and Gentile, um, which assumed um, physicalized forms, not just in terms of violence, but the ascription of physical attributes to Jews that went far beyond ethnic or racial, uh, ethnic or religious difference. Um, and I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that in light of your very, very strong claim that, um, uh, as you say, black people uh, do not have to be burdened by the ruse of analogy. Analogy mystifies rather than clarifies. And I wonder if you can explain to, uh, to us why analogy is so wrong or dangerous. Um, and maybe even take on the example with which I began, which is the essential antagonism between Jew and Gentile. Well, I would say that that all people who are who are oppressed, say by Gentiles or by whites, that 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 the that the accoutrement of that oppression shares attributes with the accoutrement of 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 black oppression. But I would also say that that the that all of those are paradigmatically irreconcilable with anti-blackness precisely because, which is not to say that the, the performances, the experiences, and, and even some of the conceptual or cognitive mapping of that oppression uh, does not articulate in some way. It does. But here's what I would say. I would say that, uh, be, that those, and I talk about this more in my second book, those aspects internal to those paradigms of oppression is what in cultural studies is called articulation, which is to say um, the oppressor is as concerned with his, with the real or projected discursive apparatus of the people that they are oppressing as they are with the epidermal schema of those people. And so this is, um, and so what and so what i what i'm what i'm arguing is that in the collective unconscious there's nothing about blackness that threatens the unconscious at the level of ideas say for example uh different ideas about 
how to organize society, different ideas about religion, different cultural accoutrements. And Fanon, in, in, for people who might be interested in, in chapter five of Black Skin, White Mask, it says, you know, he was, he's, he's, he's been debating Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre about this, you know, all the time. And he, and he says, you know, one waits for the Jew to appear. In other words, uh, will the Jew act in a, in a, I'm using quotation marks, Kate's paper can't say, in a Jewish manner. Uh, will the Jew threaten the financial stability uh, or get the best places in the university? Um, that, in other words, so, so what, what we have embedded in this is, um, which is not to say that I take away the kind of physical aggression against against physical attributes or in, or embodiment. But what I am saying is that internal to all that is a sense of conceptual threat, conceptual threat. And I really don't believe, and, and, so, and so what Fernand makes his point is that um, he's really making a point to start saying that there's always contingency involved in an anti-Semitism. This is my point where, where I, where I uh, uh, critique my Palestinian friend uh, at the very beginning, saying that there's always contingency and that even though you and the Israelis are killing each other, what you have in common is that your psychic apparatus is stabilized by the fact that you are both anti-Black, that at the, at the base is this threat that is corporeal, which is the black threat, not conceptual. There's no such thing as a black idea that threatens the world. And so that would be, and, and that leads us to a whole series of other aspects of oppression that cannot be reconciled, which is to say anti-black violence is necessary not for maintaining a certain kind of social political order, not for maintaining the extraction of surplus value, not for maintaining this, the integrity of the nuclear family under Oedipus. Anti-black violence is necessary as a psychic bomb for people to understand that were I to experience that, there would have to be some other element to the aggressivity that is conceptually coherent as opposed to just my being. And this is what Fanon is trying to say. The black is just a penis, and the Jew is an ensemble of threatening ideas. And what that leads to um, is the resistance to analogy and a certain measure of incommensurability between uh, that essential antagonism and any other form of antagonism or hatred or phobia in society. Um, and it seems to me one of the operational consequences of that incommensurability is the fact that those whom you call junior partners of the dominant white elite, um, naming, namely other people of color or women um, who um, may experience very considerable oppression in their lives, are not uh, capable of being partners in the work of upending the... Uh, the the paradigm of the auction block. I don't actually go that far, but okay, but, but I don't actually address it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm reading into you. Um, maybe you could clarify. I mean, you do, you definitely dismiss the idea of solidarity and allyship. Uh, maybe you can explain that and get to sort of my overread of your 
No, it's not overreach. It's not overreach. I mean, it's, it's a deliberate omission uh, just because I don't want to give anybody hope, you know. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's really, uh, I mean, I want to write in a certain way that, um, that explains things adequately, but, but that black people can have fun and other people can cringe. I mean, it's just, it's, it's part of the method of conveyance, you know, um, it's, it's not, um, hands across the water. So, so that, that, that omission is, um, is strategic because because the word solidarity is is to be precise is highly problematic that doesn't mean that nothing can happen between uh between blacks and and others uh it it doesn't mean you know a psychoanalyst wrote, wrote to me and said well why would a black person want to train as a psychoanalyst if this is if this is the case i mean so i i think i think it I think we have to understand that solidarity, if we're going to be really clinical, theoretically precise about it, can only happen between sentient beings whose basic scaffolding, basic structure of oppression can articulate. In other words, people who are oppressed in the main for their transgressions against a hegemonic order you wouldn't one would not say this bottle of water which i'm oppressing by drinking it <laughs> and then i'm going to dispose of it uh is um is is capable of being in solidarity with native americans who want to get their land back okay i'm going to do a hell of a lot of violence to this bottle when i get done with it okay and because it's of a different species in other words no one is asking it questions hey buddy how do you feel about, you know, the violence that I'm, that I'm perpetrating against you, you know? Um, and if it could speak, no one would even care. It wouldn't even translate. And so we have to understand, uh, this, is, this is really, this problem is a problem of the overarching nature of Anglo-American pedagogy. I mean, you know, the Germans are, have shown themselves to be murdering bastards for, 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 for decades, but I can go to Germany and have a conversation with graduate students that has no solution, and it's an easier thing than going to London, okay? Because- Notwithstanding your experience at that conference in Berlin. Yeah, but those are Americans and- And, and, and Brits, yeah. <laughs> For the most part, you know, I'm talking about yeah. So, so what I mean is that is that how can you how can you talk about a problem that has no conceptual solution? Every you know, if you grew up in the Western world, you're just as you said before, hardwired for something else. So, I I think that um, the absence of solidarity is a precise imperative or claim. It doesn't mean that we can't get together. Um, but it does mean that the uh, that what happens to someone who is not black, who actually aligns himself with black liberation, is something far more dangerous than what happens to someone who aligns himself with uh, the fight against anti-Semitism or the fight for Palestine or the fight for working, the working class, because it's a, you're, you're moving into a place where um, you will lose all of your cultural coordinates. 
You'll lose all of your friends because you'll become incomprehensible to the people around you. And um, and I and there's a man, you know, David Gilbert, uh, white Jewish revolutionary from New York. His actually his son is now the district attorney of San Francisco, and Marilyn Buck, and they're prime examples. They threw their lot in after SDS with the Black Liberation Army, and and here's my projection of what Clinton did with those files. He said, you want to be Black? I'm going to give you Black time, okay? Those two people were, were back to the unthought. They were not thought as people who had a progress narrative from good boy, good girl, to bad boy, bad girl, bombing the Capitol, to potentially good boy, good bro, girl after I let them out. He let out a ton of weather underground people who were just white, and he could not see that these two people were, because they had been blackened in his unconscious. That is black, so if you want to talk about black solidarity, you're talking about the end of your life as it exists, not helping someone and maintaining your relational capacity. Well, there's so much to pick up just on that, um, and there's so much more to discuss, but we are coming to the end of our time. Um, And I I think we have to move to the lightning round here uh, to the very short answers because I, 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 I can't resist uh, from asking about two more things. One is the university and you know what that is as a site of stasis or change or revolution or perpetuation of this essential antagonism, which is the habitus in which you dwell. Um, how do you see the university and its part in this powerful description and diagnosis that you offer? Well, uh, you know, uh, Foucault and, and Edward Said like to think of the university as a heterotopia, like, like museums or barges, you know. Um, I'm not quite that optimistic. Uh, I think of the university as an uni- industrial complex. Uh, basically, when you and I go to work every day, uh, uh, you think consciously that you're working on Jewish history and literature and, and that kind of thing. I think consciously that I'm working on black history and, and uh, semiotics, um, but we're also uh, manufacturing the atomic bomb. That's what we're doing uh, at Los Alamos and, and, at, and at, Livermore, at Livermore. So you and I have a tremendous amount of blood on our hands and we're, we're a couple of murderers. Um, and we're also contributing to the gentrification of people in inner cities into the wet, wintry oblivion. And um, we're also uh, contributing to an imperial state by, tr- by trying to help students become good, good citizens. So I don't have any um, illusion that the university is essentially something more pristine and, and ethical than, say, at Merrill Lynch or, or prisons where I used to teach. It's just that at those places, they say, let's get the bastards, you know. And at these places, we talk about civility and the expansion of knowledge. And, um, but we're still state entities. Um, and so, however, now, now that I've said that, let me backtrack and say that the temporality and the resources that exist here, the fact that there's three months out of the year in which you can be reading books 
and writing papers. The fact that I look at your your study there, you've got wall to wall, you've got wall to wall books, and and I have two big shelves here. Uh, it it gives us access to a kind of resource for intellectual development that we can take and do something that we probably that I know I could not do in the nine years that I worked in finance. Okay, it's just um, the so I think that um, the the goal for me uh, is to. Think every day. Fred Hampton used to say, when you go to bed, uh, before you say your prayers, sir, I am a revolutionary, you know. And uh, I try to go to bed and say I'm an intellectual so that I do not think of myself as an academic. So that I'm always asking myself the question, how is my work uh, parasitic on the nature of the structure where I am employed and a generative of the capacity for understanding for black people in the world. And that's where there's some space. Okay, I wanna just follow up with a, a last question um, that, that, that builds on that um, and really asks from your, I'll call it anarcho-Afro-pessimist perspective, what, what are your hopes for the future? Uh, to retire with, with some money, not the money that I have. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, but I'm getting older and my, my horizons are shrinking. And so <laughs> I want to recover from prostate cancer. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I realized that, you know, if I had started being a professor when I was 28 instead of when I was 50, you know, being a bum all around the world and teaching at community colleges, I could have retired five years ago. I mean, I, I just... My day-to-day -day mindset is so minuscule that it's embarrassing, you know. Um, so with respect to my future, I want to get a novel written, uh, get some more poetry out. Um, and, uh, you know. What about our future? Our future. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, part of it can't be spoken because it's seditious. Um, and, so, and, and the other part is that I'm, I'm actually quite happy with how things have turned out. I'm, I'm sad that so many black people have died since 2012 to make this happen. But I was really worried um, before that, that this thing called Afro-pessimism as a lens of interpretation would be relegated to the university and that there are people who, as creative writers and as intellectuals who are much more fortunate than me, like James Baldwin, because you can only make an impact in the black world as a black intellectual and writer when black people are on the move. There's no such thing. That's when that's when the world of 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 the media and and publishers become interested in black writing ideas is when black people in the streets are on the move. And so Black Lives Matter, even though it's a arguably reformist movement, they have brought me in to do lots of workshops on Afro-pessimism. And I'd like that this kind of two trains running. And um, the, uh, the fact that so many black young people in the inner city who are not in college are reading Afro-pessimism and saying how it explains their life. And that so many uh, intellectuals are having to deal with it. I'm I'm happy that we are now turning the corner and that 
the structure of black suffering is being addressed in a way that takes it away from the kind of reformist attitude of what do we do to to um, improve ourselves and, and the country. And so I just hope this keeps going. Uh, I, I, I really do. I, I think we've, uh, J. Edgar Hoover created a department that uh, has been reading black writers since 1919 and putting them the, the biggest threats in a detention camp list. And I thought he would get to me and his heirs before I got something out. Now they can come, you know, we're, it's, it's out there and it's have a life of its own and it's international. There are black Venezuelans asking themselves these questions. There's, the book has now been, you know, as you can see behind me, uh, published in Brazil. Um, black South Africans, the Black First Land First movement in South Africa treats Afro-text, pessimist texts as their ur-texts. Black people in Vienna have gone workshops there. And so um, I'm, I'm just so happy that I've been able to contribute to um, black people's struggles and I think that that will continue on. Well, on that surprisingly, even shockingly optimistic note, um, I want to bring uh, this conversation to a close. I actually don't want to, but I have to bring this conversation to a close. Uh, it's really been a, a fascinating and stimulating hour. Thank you so much, Professor Frank Wilderson, for joining us on Then and Now, making time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining in. Be well and safe. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.